Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Real change, enduring change, happens one step at a time. Is a quote from American lawyer and jurist Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the second woman to serve as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today, a trailblazer for women in business, whose influence has permeated across sectors and society. Our guest is Gillian Broadbent AC, non-executive director of Macquarie Group, the Sydney Dance Company, and the National Portrait Gallery Board Foundation. She was previously the inaugural chair of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, Chair of Swiss Re Life and Health Australia, and Chancellor of the University of Wollongong. Gillian has served on the boards of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Woolworths Group, the Australian Securities Exchange, SBS, Qantas Airways, Westfield Property Trusts, Woodside Petroleum, Coca-Cola Amatil, as well as the Sydney Theatre Company, NIDA, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, and the Art Gallery of New South Wales. In 2019, she was made a Companion of the Order of Australia for her eminent service to corporate, financial, clean energy, and cultural organisations, to higher education, and to women in business. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Belgium, Canada, and South Africa, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. With a career that spanned business, the public sector, and the arts in Australia and overseas, Gillian shares of us not only the key learnings, but also the opportunities and obstacles society face. And with the Australians deciding their future course in the coming weeks, Gillian challenges us to think about our legacy for generations to come. So sit back and enjoy the next step. Gillian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Gillian, a lot of news out there at the moment, but if you were Prime Minister for the day, maybe the week, what would you do and why? I couldn't do much in a day and a week, but whatever time I'd have, I would concentrate on trying to encourage the Australian public back to their generosity of spirit and think about putting in place mechanisms to help not only the floods and the fires and long-term challenges that we face about climate change, but even the situation in Ukraine with migrants. I feel there's a mean-spiritedness that I'd like to work very hard to diminish. Why have we lost that? 
I think it's a little bit the nature of, of politicians, particularly this government. There's been a lot of aiming their money at people where it's pork barreling, the lack of integrity, the slight marketing spin on everything so that the complex issues that we face and the long-term issues we face have been dealt with by short-term reactions and throwing money in specific areas that suit their political outcomes. So policy, the debate around policy, are we hearing enough? I think the policy, I think the response to COVID was pretty fine, but it wasn't, it could have been tighter on auditing the JobKeeper payments rather than just throwing money as, as liberally as they did. They don't throw money in other people's directions so liberally. Yeah. So I think that's uh, that was okay, but it's just the constant filter of where do we put this money so that it benefits us rather than it's in the spirit of what the Australian people would expect. So pretty confusing for the average voter out there, which way to go this I time around? I think right? so. I think so. Do you think both parties are really clear what they stand for? I believe they are. I do think Labor has a more, uh, a higher moral fibre in a way. And they think more broadly about the people rather than vested interests. But, um, you know, we haven't had that tested for a while, so it's hard to say. And being current, Gillian, we just saw all the news regarding the Solomon Islands. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I agree with the assessment in the papers. It was a sort of diplomatic stuff up. I mean, we had many opportunities. I think we cut back our aid to the Solomon Islands in trying to spend money where we think we're going to get votes from 250 million to 150 million. And that's one of the elements. Then we yeah. cut out coverage of the ABC there. And I think all of those things feed into the hearts and minds of the people in the Solomon Islands. And someone else comes along with a bigger checkbook and they say, this will be all right. So I really think it's a very serious strategic oversight that uh, we're going to bear the burden of. All right, let's talk about a couple of issues in a bit of depth then. So you're concerned around climate change and the agenda and the discussion. Yes. That's one thing. You're concerned about women's issues. You've raised that a number of times. Maybe you can talk a bit about that as well uh, in the highlights. And I guess more broadly, whether we just touched on it by Solomon Islands, China. Um, there's a couple of things. I'm sure there's others you want to bring out, but should we just start with those? What's, what is the... A major worry. Well, I suppose I see climate change and the move by most of the countries in the world to decarbonise as being an opportunity for Australia. And if we accepted it as an opportunity and went on the transition in a bipartisan way, we would have exciting opportunities for jobs and new export areas. And it's that a constant fighting over why do we have to participate in this game and it's a denial and do we have to go there and we'll reluctantly come to an agreement with the nationals about a target and it will be pretty mean. And I, I just, I'm disappointed by that lack of sense of opportunity around it. That's with regard to climate change. So we've had all sorts of responses that fuel the climate wars and misinformation rather than seizing the climate opportunity. And the opportunities to or take the lead in, in the sense of this region or even in the world in regards to technology? Oh, I think it could well be in regard to the world in technology, especially with hydrogen, because if you can get to green hydrogen, where we have unbelievable renewable energy resources, and sometimes they're in remote places, which is a bit inconvenient when you want to get the energy generated onto the grid. But yeah. if you want to build up an export industry and create hydrogen and then export hydrogen in compressed ways, the same way we do LNG, yep. then you can take advantage of the sunshine in remote places where no one is and 
I mean, I just do think there are a lot of opportunities the same way we've had opportunities in LNG. As a taxpayer, am I going to get hit? Is that going to be too swift for me in the sense of my, my, oh, my back pocket? I don't think so. I don't think there's any back pocket hitting. Yep. If we had an emissions trading scheme, there'd be a price on carbon mm. and the people who were uh, emitting it would buy it from the people who are making it and the people would make more and the market would go on and the price would be incredibly unnoticed. Yep in the whole pricing mechanism. So why can't we get both houses to sit down together and have this conversation? I think because it's been political expediency around scare tactics, and that's what I'm really disappointed about. You'll lose your job. Australia will suffer growth consequences. You won't be so well off. We don't have to comply with this. We're a small part of the world. It's that kind of spirit that is the mean-spiritedness that I'd spend my one day as Prime Minister trying to diminish. Okay, that's the first hour, and we've got the rest of the, the afternoon as Prime Minister. Women's issues. You've been quite outspoken, I guess, for pretty much well, all you're not outspoken. I get, but, probably all my but, life I've been sort of dealing with women's issues, I suppose. But I feel uh, with the whole incident around Brittany Higgins, it reminded me how far behind Parliament House is from the workplace environment of equality. It just surprised me about there's nowhere to go if you have a problem or it goes through some circuitous method where you might get hidden and it mightn't come out and people tell you to be quiet. I mean, in the corporate world now in Australia, that that's very much passe. Yeah. So you just wouldn't have those situations being dealt with in a cover-up or in a hush-up. It's very much, look, let's herald the fact that this has occurred and we don't want it to happen again and we won't accept it. And while the government might have moved to that, it was with a lot of kicking and screaming and denial along the way. So I guess it was an eye-opener to just see what happens in Parliament House, which hasn't happened in the workplace and other places, for a, in at least in the CBD, for a long time. Mm. Where do you think women are going in their, I guess, their quest to become chief execs? Chairs, you well, know, they're, in they're making society. glacial progress. It's not the end all, anyway. You do, not everyone wants to be a CEO, and not everyone um, needs to be a CEO. But you do want them to be able to participate in the workforces as creatively and productively as they can, and then they can stop when they don't want to. But as far as sort of engaging the whole population in the workforce productively is is a very good economic outcome. So I've always been uh, enthusiastic about that. Yeah. Is the message being lost a little bit now? My interpretation, it's starting to come off a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know. I think if it's very hard to say because of the glacial pace, you don't mm. know whether you just have to keep working at it. But if I say Macquarie Bank, for example, yep. where, I mean, they are still making progress. They're still working at it. They're still uh, tweaking policies. So it's a constant refinement of the best way of doing this, just to create an environment to give people choices. And that's all we can do. We can't say, I've got to have a female CEO, so get up there and do it. I mean, we've just got to uh, open doors and and stop uh, inhibitors of bad behavior that put people off participating in the workforce in that environment, because the women spinning off and starting their own businesses is certainly not stopping in any way. Yeah. And that's okay, except I'd like them to have choices of doing their own business and also participating in the mainstream. Why is it glacial then? <laughs> well, now, to this day and age, uh, why, why is it glacial? It comes up you know, regularly in every paper we read. Comes in most discussions I have as a, as a search consultant. Well, I, re I think the, re I think the, the real problem is childcare. 
We don't have enough childcare spots. Uh, I have two, a daughter and a daughter-in-law who have young babies. And when I hear this, I've booked them into a childcare. I can get them three days. I can do this. I can, I might be able to get a three and a half days. The, just the availability of childcare in the uh, intensely urbanised areas is is very low. Mm. Nothing being done and I'm there not either. in favour of tax deduction. I am in favour of government getting the infrastructure in there so that childcare positions are guaranteed and be of quality and you can work on the learn and earn, as they call it in the US. You yep. learn while the child's in preschool, the child's learning and you're earning because you're out there contributing to the economy and it's a, a very happy outcome. But if you're juggling childcare that isn't available and you don't know what day you're going to get it and you're on standby, I hear it all over the place about childcare and I really think that's what keeps people out of the workforce in their most productive way. And then at the end of the day off, I guess someone's going to walk and say, you've got five minutes, Julian, can we discuss China? Yes. Well, China's are hard to, you know, they, they're hard to predict, but they're very patient mm. and they have a long-term strategy to expand their footprint and we have to be very wary about it. Are we playing it well? <laughs> probably not if we talk about the Solomon Islands, probably not in the diplomacy in which we've adopted mm -hmm. and the way we're being uh, pushed forward by the US to stand up for ourselves when we're pretty little and we're closer to China. And I, I don't know if that's that's such a good strategy. So I think it has to be diplomacy and um, intelligence, which determines how we play the game. Yeah, fair enough. Do you think the US is going to come to our aid longer term anyway? I suspect they'd come to our aid if they came to anyone's aid, but there's not much appetite for going to aid outside the US anywhere whether it's Ukraine or whether it's Australia or, I mean, that is quite concerning because I think uh, China can see this very clearly. So yeah. that it's the appetite of, from the American voters where they don't want to go, they don't want to help anybody. Actually, what you're, what you're mentioning Ukraine, we might as well talk about it, immigration. Yes. Well, uh, I think we, we should pretty... open our doors to the Ukrainian immigrants. Absolutely. So what was the numbers? 4,000, 4,500, I think, wasn't it? It's got passed, which is pretty light on the, the scale of things. terribly light. I mean, the numbers who are leaving the country and moving into Poland or moving, yep. so, I mean, are in the millions. Yeah. So four and a half thousand isn't very much. So who's listening? And who takes this debate forward then, Gillian, if that's the case? I, I, think, I, I don't know who's listening. And I think that's part of the frustration and the appetite to vote for independence because there's a there's a desire to just call out and scream out and say, look, you're not doing anything. Who's listening to us? We like to demonstrate our generosity of spirit mm -hmm. and we don't want partisan channeling of money to your mates and we want a bigger picture in the long-term planning of policy and we want a bigger picture in where we might insulate ourselves in terms of shoring up the people who are going to face natural disasters and what we can do to contribute to diminishing them in a long, long term. Gillian, as we come to that election day, not too far off, and for all those people out there sort of weighing their, their decision up, which way they're going to go, what words of advice would you provide for them to think through, either with persuasion, how they should come to that decision? I'd like them to think about what we could have as a government rather than accepting what we have had as a government. And what we could have means voting for someone different than the incumbent, if it's the Liberal Country Party. So you're supporting the um, independence? 
Yes, we have Allegra Spender running as an independent in Wentworth, yeah. and I think her values align with my values. Interestingly, she comes from a family of a third generation of liberal politicians. It's not as though she's a, a left winger, no. <laughs> but she she's frustrated with the issues that I've, I've voiced about lack of long-term policy and uh, no desire to really be called up on integrity issues. So if we play this to its con- conclusion, where's it going to land? Are we going to have a hung parliament? That's that's the frightening thing about this, isn't it? I don't find that so frightening because if you look at other governments across the, the world and even New Zealand, we look over there, we used to look over there and say, how are they ever going to form government with this funny system they have? But they seem to have been able to not only form government, but progress in pretty good policies by bringing in people who aren't members of their party, sometimes even them giving them ministries. So I think it's going to be a blended rather than a hung parliament. It's going to be a blended uh, parliament. And the candidates generally who are running in these safe liberal seats are pretty conservative candidates, usually women, and usually calling for principled issues to be, or for issues to be dealt with in a principled way. So when you look for the debate, where do you look now? Is it just the papers and it's just pure headlines? Are we getting enough context behind it or or is Australians as a whole tuned out? Oh, there might be a bit of tuning out because the headlines seem to be so um, inflammatory all the time. So you're going, oh, is this a storm in a teacup? Is this a real thing? So you get a bit tired of, you know, the headline is certain Labor shadow ministers have been frozen out and the dialogue's been taken by other people. And I'm thinking, well, well, so what? I didn't know that that meant anything. So I guess that debate of, I'm a a bit fed up with that source of debate. I've I've probably made up my mind uh, rather than trying to determine new information coming from the headlines. And we're crazy having it every three years as well. Oh, that's probably right too. I think we could go for a bit longer. Yeah. Interesting. Now, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up on the North Shore of Sydney, very conservative, blue ribbon seat. Yes. And I believe at home there's quite uh, an active debates around the kitchen table. Would that be fair to say? Yes. I, th- I think I'm rather appreciative of those active debates. And being the youngest, I was always the one who could never keep up with everyone. You know, I never had really any new input into the debate. Yeah, but they were fairly heated, weren't they, from what I've read? Some of the... Some well, of the comments you've said well, in the past. And, uh, I suppose what I call a heated debate is just a, a conversation, although I do find when I have that degree of conversation outside my family, it's seen as a heated debate or I'm starting a heated debate. So I probably was born up with that heat and didn't notice it. But I guess actually putting an argument together. I think that's a great right. Structure, that's wasn't right. It? There was always the case of, you know, what's your argument? You can't just say, oh, I don't think I agree with that. You'd say, why not? And the sense of national pride, I think, uh, Gillian, I've read that you, from an early age, national pride and moral guide were the two things you Well, I think those two things were very strong in my parents, partly, you know, the national pride in terms of my dad, because you had the Australian army and the, you know, we didn't have any conscription, we had the volunteers and we went out there to do the right thing. So he was real king and country type, you know. So I guess that left you with a sense of national pride of what we stand up for and what we what we don't. And um, in terms of values, I do think that national pride helps you make an effort on issues that you believe in, that the only reward to you is 
making an impact on something you really care about or you believe in. And I think that applies in terms of whether you're going off to war or, you know, there's a lot of downside to that. But there were a lot of people who chose not to go to the war and who did quite well financially from staying at home. So it wasn't as though everyone went to war. And I'm not exactly a warmonger, but I do think if you... If you you know yourself from your own military background, yeah. if you do, there's a there is a serving your nation, and uh, there are a lot of roles in peacetime that are serving your nation that that should be heralded and respected more than something that's entirely financially beneficial to you. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Gillian Broadbent AC. In our next episode, I sit down with Mick McCormack, former CEO of APA Group, chairman of Central Petroleum Limited a non-executive director of Origin Energy and Austal. You've got the boss of the RBA for the last couple of years, and at least up until the last 12 months, telling all and sundry, it's all right, folks. You yeah, keep borrowing money. We're not going to touch interest rates until 2024. I sit on a couple of boards and, you know, got a property, all that sort of stuff. Mate, my prices that I've experienced and on the boards I'm on, they've been going up for 12 months. Be sure to join us in our next episode. And now, back to the show. Now, you went to University of Sydney, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Mathematics and economics? Mm-hmm. Many other females doing that curriculum? That's uh, No, probably not. There were, uh, there were probably about 10% in economics and maybe 10% in the maths. What'd you do it? Well, I, when I was at school, I was good at maths and when I went to the vocational guidance person as to what, what do I study... She said, well, what do you like? And I said, well, I like maths. I'm quite good at maths. And she said, well, you know, you could be a maths teacher. And I thought, oh, I didn't think I wanted to be a maths teacher. And then she said, well, you could look at economics. Economics is the the maths of the country, the, the, the growth and the commercial activity of the country captured mathematically. And I'd never even heard of economics. I didn't know what it was. But I thought, well, that sounds like it would lead me to a career that wasn't teaching and that would have an application for maths that wasn't actuarial or, you know, I was a bit against, I wasn't so good at maths that I could be a a capable boffin type, like an actuary or a professor or something. I just had a sort of willing aptitude, I think. And as it turned out, that suited me because my application of maths is a bit more um, commercial response and savvy and adjustment and um, rather than high maths. So that led you to your first, uh, I think it was an early interview. Was it at Shell, wasn't it? Oh, when we graduated. Yes. And we were... Um, That's a true yes. story, is it? Yes, yeah. we were We were going out to various interviews and I thought, Shell, well, they wanted an economist. A big company. Yeah, and I thought, oh, <laughs> Shell International sounds interesting and I bowl up there and they say, oh, uh, you know, we're an oil and gas company and I say, yes. And I thought, gosh, well, they must think I really know nothing. And and they said, we thought your name was, we go to remote places and we take, and they started to explain what oil and gas was, which I thought I knew. I didn't know that much. But they said, uh, then I'm going keenly nodding my head saying, (laughs) yes, I know this. And they said, look, you're here because we thought your name was Julian. And I'm going, oh, no, it's Jillian. And they said, well, look, we... We it tends to be a a male profession. I don't know if they even said it that way, but it took a long time for me to realise I don't think they want me. But 
at that stage, there was zero unemployment and everyone was looking for people. So I didn't feel as though if I, all I thought of, well, I'm glad that I got the sense of that before I went in there rather than I went in there through some error. <laughs> if, it, if it hadn't been a face-to-face interview and it had been a written application and they said, you've got the credentials, you get the job. So I think that was, um, you know, I only looked back on it and smiled mm. when I thought that when I went to the Reserve Bank, yep. they were very early into gender neutrality because they had equal pay for male and female graduates, probably the only entity even in, in Australia who did that because even that the right? federal government didn't have equal pay for men and women. Okay. Why did you go to the ABA then? Why did, Why did I? Yeah. Well, they were looking for people to build the econometric model, which required maths and economics, and yep. there weren't very many of us combining those two. So, And this is the era when what deregulation is about to commence? A bit before that. We were trying to do build these models to understand the sensitivity of interest rate changes across the whole economy. I mean, you had an idea from historical analysis, but you, this was a model which was all integrated, so you got a better understanding of the dynamics and how the dynamics were changing over different time periods. So it was at the time when high-powered computers were becoming more available and that kind of analysis was being done all over the world. And so Australia wanted to have their own model. So just on analysis and RBA, we saw today the inflation numbers come out, 5.1%. What's your thoughts? Is that a concern? I think they'll find it hard depending on the components that made up that 5.1% because they make a determination, is this a flash event coming through oil prices or some other uh, short-term impact on commodity prices that might be filtering through? They'll make an assessment, is that short-term or is it uh, an increase in the underlying inflation? And as you know, they've been indicating they don't want to increase rates until they see some pressure coming in the wage front. And yep. we haven't really seen any pressure in the wage front. You don't think so? Just starting to happen now. Oh, we, we are seeing wage pressure in terms of the sort of recruitment that you're seeking. Yep. And certainly in the banking area where I'm working in the senior executives, seeing a lot of wage pressure. But if you're talking about the general working environment, there hasn't really been very much wage pressure. And there's been a shortage of labour that hasn't really responded with the wage number because it's usually under a uh, an enterprise agreement that has a time span and it doesn't. T- there's always a lag in in the wages in Australia because of the enterprise agreements having a might be a two year or three year term, so it takes yeah. a while to be reflected in the bargaining process. Yeah. So I think we haven't seen the wage pressure coming through, and the Reserve Bank will be saying. We're going to wait for the wage pressure, which once you get wage pressure, then you're actually... So too late then, Gillian? Well... Well, why have an analyst who can actually tell me that the US has got inflation booming? I never think it's too late. With the Reserve Bank, they can move as quickly and regularly as they like. So if they find it's too late, they can go with an extra amount. Yeah. So I, I remember back in the time when we had the global financial crisis and we're on this precipice and we're saying, well... What do we do? Is it going to be a quarter or half a percent? And and I remember saying, so I said, or oh, three quarters of a percent. And, I, and then we all talked about we're going to go three quarters of a percent because I said, if we get it wrong, we will go back. You know, because when you don't know in that situation, you tend to go more yeah. 
and then you level out and you creep Mm. back earlier. So the question now is whether they go sooner with a little bit, but you can never really be too late because it's not as though it's being, it's going to let it run for 18 months. It's just a matter of, look, do we go now or do we see what the wage figures are in a month and then we go half a percent or instead of a quarter or or an eighth or, you know, like, uh, so they can vary the amount they go and the timing can be pretty quick if they want to. Mm, But it looks like it's coming. I think it's coming, yes, but the market is anticipating it coming uh, much sooner and more seriously than the Reserve Bank's indicated in their dialogue. That's what I find a bit interesting. You think they've been a bit off on that? Without, I mean, a little well, bit surprised in some of the 2024, et cetera, they've been talking about not going up on interest rates then, but gosh, look at the Yes, US. I, I think the Reserve Bank said 2023 oh, now. Sorry. Sorry, so, okay. uh, you know, 2023, I don't think they've said January or December, but, you know, they try okay. to look ahead to say, I mean, it, it's very important they retain the confidence of the general public. So they'll they'll make a very considered decision. And if they decide to do not to change rates, it'll be because they're they're waiting to see more evidence of it being less than a flash in the pan. Yeah. It just looks like it's not going to be dealing. It looks like it's going to be multiple at the next next period of time. I don't know. You you can be surprised because mm. if we don't get some increase in wages, then the interest rate increases are going to be pretty harsh on the general population who haven't got any increase in wages. Absolutely. Although, interestingly, when interest rates do change, it's only a very small portion of the mortgage holders who choose to have their regular payments increased. What they tend to do is extend the duration of their debt. So as interest rates have been coming down, they haven't taken that in their savings. They've actually said, look, I'll pay the old rate, which will pay off more of my principal in a hurry. So that was quite evident in the global financial crisis where you'd think, oh, that immediately it had happened, but you have to you have to go to the bank and say, make it happen. It doesn't, they don't just automatically move it down until you, they'll send you a note saying, do you want to reduce your payments? And if you can, and you've still got a job and you feel you can do it, you'll probably keep your payments going because the sooner you're out of their hair, the better. Do you reckon it's good being a young person now? Oh, it's always good being a young person. <laughs> <laughs> but opportunities? Oh, um, I think so. So why do we always hear, always hear the negative stuff? Oh. You know, it's always going to be hard to buy that first apartment. It's going to be hard to get that first house. I don't don't know. I never dwell on the negative stuff too much. It's certainly hard. It's much harder for young people to enter the housing market. That's absolutely true. But the opportunities for young people in terms of the range of jobs, the flexibility of working, the variability of starting your own business – Within the university sector, the startups that are, you know, the incubators that are yep. there to to help people if they've got an idea, get going and to give them some office space and a bit of money to give it a go. I, I think those opportunities are, are much more prevalent than they were w- when I was a young person. I was struggling to get a housing loan because I was a female and I might not stay in the workforce. So in that way, I-, I Oh, you're think, a risk, aren't you? Yes, quite. quite. I was a risk. <laughs> <laughs> just speaking a bit about that, talking about the incubators, just going off a little mm. bit. If I look at Singapore, how they entice business to stay and invest and the tax incentives they provide and the policy and the thinking behind that, do we do anywhere near that in Australia? No, I, because we- haven't been prepared to, uh, Singapore has a a lower tax rate than we do overall in the corporate sector. 
And I don't think we want to go there and that I would support not going there. But I do think we're – well, why? Because – we have a much bigger population, a much bigger country, a lot more infrastructure and support required across the country and, and the tax rates get put more into transfer payments. Don't forget Singapore with its small population has a very significant transient worker population sure where they bring in a huge range of migrants and say you can work here and live in a container terminal for, you know, yep. three years and then we'll send you home. So yep. I don't think that's what we want to do. So I'm I'm not in favour of, of the tax incentive for startup companies. We have tax incentives in as far as there's a deductions for certain research allocation. And if you're a startup company, you tend to be putting more money into research and development. So we do have some support for innovation, but what we don't have a consistent bipartisan policy is on supporting the universities in primary research and related research, they're always turning the tap off and on with research grants to the universities, the same way we turn the tap off and on to the the Solomon Islands. So you you say, well, when you do that, you tend to not retain the the students and the intelligence and the the sense of of, uh, intellectual pursuit of novelty. You tend to have a lot of inventions on the side and the fringe of something rather than primary research. So do we value education enough? I think we do. We say we do, but the money doesn't indicate we value it when you look at the money going to universities for research. So we value the education, but we also say, well, every student that goes through the university, the federal government has to pay about 40% of the cost of that and the rest is picked up in hex by the the student themselves. Yep. And the government says, well, we'll put a cap on how much hex we're prepared to pay. So if you want any more revenue going through the university, you have to take foreign students where you can charge them a bit more than the 100%, and we don't have to pay the 40%. So that led to quite a significant dependence by the universities on foreign students. Yep. And then when COVID occurred and the foreign students couldn't get here or or couldn't leave their own countries, then the federal government said, well, you're not eligible for JobKeeper and you're not, we're not giving you any more money. We're giving money everywhere else, but we're not doing anything to the universities to supplement what you've lost. And that cream that comes from foreign students is exactly what goes into primary research and real quality in the tertiary education experience. So that was, they've been running pretty leanly since COVID started and they haven't had international students and they're only coming back in a real drip. So did Canada and the UK pick up a lot of that cream? Well, a lot of the students went online and a lot of them, as because uh, the UK, less so Canada, but the UK opened their doors more quickly with COVID than we did. And even the US never really stopped in having doors too much, closing doors for a much shorter period of time. So they have gone elsewhere and they've also gone to a a diverse range of countries. Chris Corrigan played a role in your life. Can you talk us through how did that all come about? Well, he recruited me into Bankers Trust Australia where I worked for 22 years Mm -hmm. and uh, he was always a very... uh, bold actor on the corporate landscape. He lobbied for breaking the uh, hold that stockbrokers had where only certain 
firms had the right to trade in equities and he lobbied to say, well, why can't a bank have a license in trading equities? Trading equities only being executing trades in equities. And we uh, presented a case to the the predecessor of the ACCC. I mean, it seems so ridiculous now that any of these things are restricted, but there was a very much a status quo on what the banks could do. As you know, we only had a small number of banks and then under oh, the merchant banks in those days, weren't they? There were these banks that were called merchant banks because they were supposed to be dealing in the wholesale market and they couldn't deal anywhere else. They yeah. couldn't have a foreign exchange license. All of those activities were restricted to the licensed uh, trading banks and there were only four of those or there might have been a few more, but they were merging. Mm-hmm. And so when Keating said, I'm offering another 16 licenses to banks, you know, Bankers Trust was lucky enough to get one. But uh, that then opened the market for all sorts of competition and innovation in the financing market and disintermediation in finance, which had previously entirely gone through the banks. Everyone put their deposit in the bank. The bank kept the money on their balance sheet and lent it out to the various corporates in a very restricted Conservative, uh, fashion. conservative fashion. And suddenly yeah. when you had intermediation, you could find people who'd lend directly, mainly institutions, life insurance companies, and uh, who'd lend directly to these corporations and and lend into a security if, if the loan could be securitized. So you had an emergence of securitization covering not just mortgages, but uh, corporate debt. And so you you facilitated the flow between the borrowers and lenders not having to go through the intermediation of the major banks. And did you sell Mr. Corrigan the idea that you're going to run a foreign exchange desk? Yes. Well, he was about to close it down. It was a fairly small operation and we didn't have a a banking license at the time. And Mm -hmm. I said, "Well, well, we could run it and we might get a banking license and then we'd have a foreign exchange license. So it's an investment for the future, and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to move out of being an advisor to him on strategy and do something a bit more hands-on. So he said, "All right, I could have this little foreign exchange business," and I built it up to being a very profitable business. So I was quite—I'm sure he doesn't regret making that decision. I'm sure he doesn't. Now, Mr. Ferguson came along, Rob Ferguson. I think he described you as a deep thinker. I Where do you take the time to think, Shelley? Do you? Yes, I don't know if I'm a deep thinker is a lateral thinker. I think okay. I'm a bit less inclined. That that suited both Chris Corrigan and Rob Ferguson, I think, because they, when you're a small bank and you're trying to find opportunities. Yep. You've got to be creative. You've, you've got, got to be creative. Yeah. You've got to look where the, where the blockages are. You've got yep. to look how to differentiate yourself. And, yep. you, you know, you're knocking on the door of large corporations who can't imagine that you've got you little person, little company can have anything to offer them. So you've yep. got to be pretty lateral in that way. Yeah. So I think I was, uh, I was lateral in the way of problem solving and that enabled me to build a business that solved problems that corporate clients said they had rather than we had a solution for. So there was so much knocking on doors to say, I've got a product and this should suit you. Whereas I was a bit more of what's your problem? Where are you at? What are you doing? And then going back and seeing what we could do for them. So what did you like about their leadership styles? Is it they're encouraging you to go to your full potential or what? Oh, I think so. And also there, I think probably because we were a small organization and we you had take to the big guys on. and we had to think about the big picture. So both Chris and Rob were very big on 
What are the global trends? What issues are we likely to make progress on? Like getting a, a license to deal in equities, you'd say, well, it is an oligopoly and the government says they're against oligopolies, but they don't even recognise it as being one and they don't realise how uh, fixed the terms and pricing and services, the service is what they want to provide, not what you think the client might need or if you had large trades that were put through, you'd, you'd still be charged the same brokerage, but you might get a free lunch. You know, it was all very much uh, Is it a tough world groups, of, groups of guys getting yeah. together and running yeah. the world. Yeah, so it was pretty tough. <laughs> Look, it was tough, but uh, because I've been brought up in this heated debate, one thing that Chris and Rob were both responsive to were heated debates. So they'd never, they'd never give you the look that said, look, you are a female from I don't know where and I don't bother me. It was always, what crazy thing have you got now? I mean, they were, they sort of, I'd say, enjoyably entertained what I'd ever want to put forward. That was the renaissance time really for Australia, wasn't it? Well, it was in, in banking and finance because you had the deregulation of interest rates, the deregulation of the exchange rate, the uh, issuing of, in, you know, more banking licenses. Yeah. And all of that created a demand for services of managing the interest rate and foreign exchange risk, which the banks had never done because yep. they'd really lived more in fixed rates and only one-stop shop and it's on my terms. And uh, so all of that was a complete liberation of, of how you might go about wanting money and uh, sourcing, finding sources of money. And that was a very a very interesting time for new financial services to be developed and it's a pretty liberating, provided. And some pretty liberating politicians as well and Hawke and Keating, I guess. I think so. Well, I think forward-thinking politicians because they weren't sticking to what they've known and resisting it. They were saying, look, it seems other countries in the world have gone this way and it's facilitated the flow of funds and the and the containment of inflation, really. Ultimately, interest rates had to move when inflation moved. And in that sense, in the old days, the government was very much behind the market because they made their decisions only when they did a bond issue at a fixed price. Yep. It's hard to imagine what it was like. Why did you um, go back to the Reserve Bank? Well, <laughs> the Reserve Bank was uh, my first job, as, yeah. as I said, and it was a very good experience for me. They were very smart people I was working with. They had this community commitment to the goal of serving all Australians and acting in the best interests and the well-being of all Australians. So it was a very wholesome charter they had in the legislation. And they were also very lateral thinking in the issues you debate. I remember talking about, they asked me, what do you think about capital punishment? And I'd never thought about capital punishment. And I said, oh, I think it'd probably, um, there'd be some case when, when you'd think it was a good thing. And th mm. then they, the, most of them pounced on me and said, I can't believe you're saying that. And then I realised now how, you know, I'd been a bit sheltered. I'd never been dealing with anybody who was likely to be subject to capital punishment, but it was a it was a sort of a liberal way of thinking, the same way they thought liberally about solving economic problems. So it was a very um it's a good thing to be challenged like that in a comfortable environment with people you respect. And that was probably what I'd been brought up with and what I ended up finding at Bankers Trust with Chris and Rob. 
So when I had the opportunity to go back there, apart from the uh, extraordinary honour of, of serving on the Reserve Bank board, I, I couldn't wait. Gillian, what do you see the role of a board director? I know it sounds so basic and so boring a thing to bring up, but it's not. Because you've, you've worked on and been on some of the, the best and highest profiles in the country. But what yes, is the and, fundamental and the role? role of, the role of the board has changed a lot over the 20 years I've been a non-executive director. Mm. And I think it's... It's been driven by the expectations of the shareholders, the community, and the customers. And so many times when things go wrong, they say, where was the board? What was the board doing? And you go through in your own head about, well, management didn't see it was coming and we didn't see it was coming. And I think the cumulative number of incidents where the board... Boards have recognised we could have done more. Let's have reports on issues that we think are coming up. Let's change the style of interaction. And I think all of that has meant you've got to make sure that the board is leaning in collectively to accept the responsibility that they have and the increased workload that comes from wanting to do it well. And a lot of that is driven by the chair and uh, the willingness of the individual directors because you've only got to have someone saying, why do we have to have another meeting? And then you think, yes, I don't know that I want another meeting. Yeah. And then you'd, you you would never do that as an executive. You'd just say, I've got to get the task done. So, um, you know, I think there's been a, a preparedness to change the frequency of meetings. If there's a crisis going on, if you're making a bid for a company or you, somebody's making a bid for you, you you don't just wait for the next month. You have to deal with it straight away. So there's been a lot more corporate activity and a lot more marked difference between performing companies and non-performing companies. So, you know, making the effort both at the executive and the board level makes a big difference to whether your company's going to be in the top quartile or the bottom quartile and the gap between them will be quite significant. Still as much fun as it used to be? I think it is, yes, because there's, especially if you're in companies that really are growing and achieving and focused on people and talent and just watching the way they think, being around intelligent people and the way they think and being imaginative is always a stimulus. Always seem to have uh, risen to the cause. Looking back all those years ago, what's been the, what do you attribute the changes to? Well, I think we got a very effective uh, CEO in Brad Banducci and we had a good chair in Gordon Cairns. And I think a new board and a new CEO, the combination was very successful. So the learnings from that, Gillian, have you applied that elsewhere and asked other sort of questions as a result of that? I think so. And I say I think so in that when I was involved with APRA doing the CBA review, I would say... This is like Woolworths and my other colleagues are the two panel members and say, we've heard enough about Woolworths. And I said, well, not really. It's complacency and being at the top and just thinking you've got it right. So they don't challenge and they don't challenge from the lower levels and the board doesn't challenge what's going on because everything looks pretty good. And that is exactly the same as it was at Woolworths. So I guess I've got a bit of a a nose for hubris and uh, I try to call it out and I probably sharpened that up even more with my Woolworths experience. Where are you spending your time now as a director? Well, Macquarie's still pretty demanding. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, that's the only, thankfully, the only public company board I, I'm involved with. And the other activities are the Sydney Dance Company, which is uh, a wonderful engagement. 
and uh, the National Portrait Gallery. But you had tremendous experience. You've had SBS? Yes, yes. I've been very lucky in some of the uh, both community and uh, not-for-profit and profit organisations that I've been involved with because it has given me a very broad knowledge of all sorts of industries and therefore an interest in those industries. Qantas? Qantas, yes. That was very interesting. Tough to make a buck in an airline? <laughs> well, it was very hard to make a buck in an airline. In fact, the when I was on the board, which is going back more than 20 years, the only route that Qantas flew that made a profit was to Japan and back. The rest of them were all at a loss. So they did make a profit on the bottom line, but only from that one route. And then when it when you had to rationalise all the routes and say, why are we flying to Greece? I mean, the whole environment in the airline industry was Qantas set a price at the start of the year for an economy and a first-class fare, and then they handed it out to the travel agents and nothing changed oh, yeah, that's right. for a year. Yep. And, you know, terrible things could happen in terms of the oil price yep. or other costs, yep. and you just had to sit on that price. And if the tickets weren't selling, you were still sitting on that price. You might get discounting by the travel agents. Yep. They varied the price. But uh, Qantas pretty much sat on the – not just Qantas, all the airlines did that – and then you got into this, what they called yield management, sounded terribly sophisticated. And as we all know, you could buy a ticket now and you could buy it tonight when you go home and it'd be a different price. Yeah. I mean, it, it uses an algorithm and responds to, if this is the normal demand curve for this flight leaving in June to go to London and you're falling below it, then you would reduce your price for a bit till you got up to where you think it should be. And I mean, all of that's had to deal with COVID and getting back to what is normal when maybe the appetite to travel is is permanently damaged. But that was such a huge, um, huge change in that industry, which was quite interesting just to observe it. Once you'd seen what it was thinking about doing and possibly selling tickets on the internet, I thought that was never going to happen. I mean, I sound like a dinosaur, but 25 years ago, it wasn't happening. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Gillian, I always found really interesting, you've had that absolute pleasure and I guess the opportunity to see a real entrepreneur. And I'm thinking of the sense that you were on the board of Westfield. Mm. And there was a gentleman who set that business up who was a delicatessen, wasn't he? To start with? Well, I, I suppose you could say he was that. He sold small goods okay. to uh, various shops. That's right. But he, he so identified- how did he do it? Well, I you know, think he, first of out. all, he identified the fact that there was a demand for a with the influx of migrants coming after the Second World War, he yep. identified there was a demand for food other than uh, steak and mashed potatoes or lamb chops and no peas, lamb's fry and peas, or, you know, <laughs> peas, beans and potatoes. So, and there was a whole. I mean, my mum used to say, "Thank goodness for the Italians, the range of vegetables, you know, quadrupled." So that 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 appetite for people to try different foods and find the foods that might remind them of the country they came from, whether it was Hungarian salami or, you know. The, so he started sourcing these products mm -hmm. and um, finding there was a demand for it. And then he found the shops wanted a place to be rather than in the strip shopping. And so I think he was very observant of what the dynamics were in the Australian market. And then he was also very observant of what was happening to property prices both in Australia and globally, that if you could get your footprint on prime real estate and build up 
a shopping centre. He was the first one to introduce shopping centres to Australia. But that was a macro trend that was happening in the US and less so in the UK and less so in Europe. But the US was certainly developing shopping centres. And he then identified the spots on the train route where these shopping centres would, people could get to them before they were, everyone had cars. So he picked very good spots when he started his business. And Mm. then he was also very innovative in the way he structured the company and what was growth and what was real estate and spinning off the real estate assets into trusts so that they only had to earn enough to pay the interest on the mortgage and the rent, uh, they'd get the rent, and then all of the growth and the investment in the shopping centres went into uh, uh, Westfield Holdings. So he was very innovative in what financial structures he used, but basically it was identifying a trend and backing it and and, uh, pursuing it and making decisions to change your mind. He went into the US uh, and had a very bad experience and quickly got out of there. And then it didn't stop him going back into the US when he felt he knew the market better, when he felt the appetite from his investors and shareholders was there. So I think he was always prepared to uh, back his judgment and, and, uh, you know, he attracted very good people to work for him. Yeah, but you've got to go and work for him. So was he a visionary? Why would I I want to go and work for him? I think he was a tough uh, uh, master. That's what we hear. But uh, (laughs) he was probably tougher with his... uh, tougher with his retail customers than he might have been with the people working there. But he he was tough, but <laughs> when, uh, when he'd say, oh, you know, what's business like? And I, he said, doing any business with us? And I said, yes, but you, you reacted to this. I'd done all this work and then you said you were going to shop it around and you were going to. So that was pretty disappointing. And he said, oh, who is this person? And I said, well, there's nothing wrong with the person. It's the message he's got from you that he has to do this. It's not him. He said, oh. I said, look, he's a smart cookie. Is and then he's, he went back and I said, I think the fair way to do this would be to ask us to um, to give you the option, to give us the option of meeting any price. But don't, I mean, it was a fair price anyway, but to go and say, here's a structure that's tailored to you and then get someone else to price it doesn't put any value on the structure that was tailored to what you wanted. But it was the quick way he said, oh, it's, it's blaming this person. And then when I defended the person, he was prepared to say, all right, that's okay. Um, and there were many times when Frank said to me, uh, I, if you're going to disagree with me, could you do it before the meeting? And I said, not really, because i I'm sort of coming into the meeting and I haven't really, I don't know what I'm going to disagree with. Or sometimes uh, he'd, he'd uh, say, well, I think we've had everyone's view on that. And then he'd he'd send the message around saying, I think the board would all agree we'll move to this. And he never, you know, he didn't do it in the meeting, but he thought, so I just always felt he was listening to these lateral ideas. I mean, he didn't do that all the time, but he did it often enough to know that he was not dismissive about any input he got. That was what I experienced. And I think he was like that with every commercial venture he went out to. He was always absorbing information, which made him very good at making decisions. Great decision maker. Mm. So from all the chief execs you've watched from a board perspective, what's been, I guess, you know, in your mind, the real standouts, not by names, but by character traits? Oh, courage. I think um, preparedness, um, honesty and openness with the board. You get a lot of value out of the board if you're open with them, but there is a natural tendency to, let's just tell, we don't. Keep him in the dark? 
Well, not I don't an intention to keep them in the dark, but we want this approval. Let's just polish up the proposal and we'll eliminate every question before we get to it so it just goes through. But with many chief executives, I've seen a better approach being we're thinking about, so you, you give warning to the board of the long-term idea that's coming up in the pipeline. <laughs> and so you're saying, we're thinking about this, but we're looking at that and we'll come back to you on this. So when you come into it, it's not the polished up idea you've just heard of. You've actually come in running with them. And uh, the personality of individual uh, CEOs helps them do that, some more than others. Firing a CEO, pretty hard work. Yes, and you don't do it lightly and you don't do it uh, unless it's absolutely essential. Do you think we do it enough based on what, what we see out there? It, it, look, I think the turnover of CEOs is really Pretty very high, high and yep. uh, the term of CEOs is quite low yep. to global comparatives. So yeah, I think the the world. sometimes the decision can be made a bit too quickly to just blame the CEO and look like you're doing more than you are doing. But there are also situations where you recognise as a board and the, and the CEO probably recognises that it's time to have a change and then you try to move on a smooth transition, but it sometimes isn't as smooth as you want it to be. I think we're going to see a lot of CEOs move on in the next 12, 24 months. The only reason I say that, there was a lot of chairs move on in the last 18 months through COVID. Yes. And uh, now you think often there's that sort of that ships in the night, the agreement. Well, we're getting this, uh, what's called in the US, the great retirement, yeah. uh, where people, not necessarily CEOs or chairs, but just individual executives who think, I don't think I want to go back to doing what I was doing at the pace I was doing and being on the road for uh, 22 weeks of the, of the 56 out of the country, you yeah. know, that we're getting these statistics quoted that you didn't really think about before. You just thought, oh, this is the job and I'm on the road Suck and it up. I make the best of it I can and I try yep. to just do the job. But because there's been a recognition and an experience of achieving without actually getting on the road, I think the hybrid working is here to stay. And if we can work on the hybrid working and hold on to people, that's probably a good thing for them and us. But um, there may well be people who say, well, what am I doing this for? What's the working week going to be like, Gillian? Uh, let me pose a question to you. So most chief execs are trying to figure out, is it going to be three days, four days, five days, two days, et cetera? Is it remote? What's going to be acceptable for those coming back? As a female said to me, uh, a couple of them have said, um, and I've said it to other guests of recent times, so I'm interested in your perspective. I'm very worried because most females are going to volunteer or step up and stay at home do the three days a week potentially at work, do the other couple at home. The gents are going to be back in there in five minutes flat doing the normal thing. And guess what? Just out of human nature, uh, when it comes to promotion, when it comes to, when I want to think about next or next big task, I'm probably just naturally going to go, bang, Bill's over there. I, Mary, I, suspect, I haven't spoken to. I suspect not, partly be because we've been through this hybrid working for two years now. Yep. And I think we've seen that productivity is, well, at Macquarie Bank, it's hardly fallen at all. Yep. So there's a recognition that you don't have to physically be in there. And this can be very favorable to women because if anything, before we went to say there might be a preference, I want to be in there three days and 
and the guy saying, I'm prepared to be in there for five days, I think there's a recognition. It's not how many days you're in here. It's what you're doing, how effective you are at it and what you do with your time and what the implications are for the people you're working with, the people you're working for, Mm -hmm. all of the measures of the culture and the spirit and the cooperation and the leverage people get from each other is being more clearly measured. So I don't think just the fact that you're seen there is going to be as powerful as it might have been 20 years ago. Okay. Not being so I'm not so worried yeah. about that. Not really. But interestingly, okay. in our uh, retail bank, we've had the mm, appetite to come back to work has been slower than in the wholesale bank. And some of that is that they're traveling for, I mean, sometimes they're more junior roles yes. and they're traveling sometimes over an hour to get in there and an hour to get out. And they're they're not necessarily getting the dynamic of the team working together because they're dealing with outside client problems that they've been able to complete at home. And the technology invested in facilitating their activities has been considerable. So, I mean, they may not come back as as they might have before. But we we do want to get them back for the culture for their sake as much as... Well, that's the other concern, isn't it? Mm. You, you, you of, still want of, people to feel a sense of belonging. Gillian, I'm actually hearing from a number of chief execs that they reckon productivity is going down. Well, it depends what they're measuring. We yeah. certainly haven't had productivity going down at Macquarie over the last two years of COVID, which has been a very big surprise. If you measure productivity as servicing client business, um, bottom line outcome, engagement of staff in the engagement surveys, the engagement level's gone up. So I suppose there are lots of ways you can measure productivity, but I think it's, uh, I mean, there there are some areas in the health sector where productivity has declined because people are absolutely exhausted. exhausted. Yeah, I agree. Gillian, are you starting to see the sort of development of the co-sharing roles? We talked about this, uh, hoping it was going to be an answer probably about 15 years ago, but there, there is some of it, and if you can find the right person to share with, it works extremely well. But it does depend on the nature of the business and the nature of the individuals and their synchronisation with each other. In theory, I think it's wonderful when you can make it work and the appetite from both the participants and the company is to make it work, but it's probably going to be because of the nature of, of finding that match with the two people and one might be in a hurry to climb the ladder and the other one's quite happy to go sideways. I mean, all of those ambitions and approach to the role don't lend themselves to it becoming too universal, but it's certainly a a very good thing to try and create if you can. Yeah. And it sort of takes me to one of your comments, which was some people don't recognize merit if it's not in the same form as themselves. Yes, well, I think that can apply. It it used to apply to men not recognising merit in women because the style's a bit different. Yes. And it can apply to women not recognising merit in women if their style's different. So I think it's hard to see someone's approach, if it's totally different to your own, Mm -hmm. to uh, give it as much merit as as it deserves. Yep. But you have to measure the merit by the outcomes and say, well, I don't think I would have done that, but they seem to have done it quite well. And if everyone's open with themselves to change and honest about what they're seeing and what they might be able to pick up, then we should get a more blended approach to the recognition of merit because you say, look, you're not like me, but I can do with someone like you in the team. Do you believe in the uh, the quota system? 
Well, I think there is uh, merit in quotas, not so much quotas as targets, because when you have a target and you say, look, have you progressed towards this target? Now, we've had targets in Macquarie for a long time, and we had very little movement, even although the targets were there, we didn't have any movement towards them, really. And then uh, the board pushed to say, look, we're going to recognise moving to these targets as being something we value. (laughs) And so we're going to call you out if you haven't done it. Otherwise, it's just no point in us setting targets and you say, okay, they're set, well, it doesn't apply to me. Because if you start, and then we started training people on familiarising them with where they were on their targets, where the other business unit was on their target and the techniques they used to retain people or to build up or to drill down more into areas where the turnover of female staff was much higher. So better tools have been developed. And I think that's helping them better to move towards targets because if you have longer term targets and an assessment of if there's any progress to the target, you probably don't need to have a you don't need to have a quota because the target picks up the dynamic of it. Has that been well received, do you think, across uh, corporate Australia? I know because you say Macquarie. Well, there's always a, an immediate it's, resistance because mm. you were getting along pretty well and you were successful going the way you were and you didn't want to be reminded about talent in a different form. <laughs> Basically, but once you've, it's more the conversion that you see in people that's so heartwarming. You know, they, I recruited this woman from, she's outstanding. And, you know, there's sort of like a sense of surprise. And then you find the blended team is doing better. And then you find once you've, you know, progress on the target was a bit easier once they sort of moved a bit, then they found that the experience was very positive. So the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, you had a big role there. Mm. Where are we actually at then? So I know we just touched it early on in our discussion about the numbers being measured and the incentives or disincentives or the debate going backwards and forth between both you parties. You mean where are we in the whole climate debate or yeah. the Clean Energy Finance Corps? Because I think the Clean Energy Finance Corps has been heralded by both sides of government as being a good example and it's made disciplined uh, investments and it's yep. yielded a good return for the government. So financially it's been a very great success. Yep. And the industry is very... Um, uh, supportive of what it's done, particularly in the dark days of the talk of abandoning the renewable energy target. So I think supporting the broader industry of decarbonisation and cleaner energy through that time was very important. Otherwise, you have the stop-start the same way you have in the universities where you fund research and then you have to leave it and then you have to start up the research team again. So that that was a very good uh, mechanism for supporting the industry through those times, and uh, but I think the it's good that both parties have set a uh, emissions reduction target. Some with more of their heart in it than others, mm. and some with a different, more ambitious target than the others in terms of when and how much and how quickly. But I think what. I'm hoping what will happen, whoever's in government, is that the the momentum that's been built up in identifying uh, technologies that that decarbonise, that we can export, and that we can move long term to an industry that is less dependent on hydrocarbons, as the world is doing, then mm. we'll be we'll be better off. I mean, the idea that Germany's abandoning the target and Britain's abandoning the cargo because they've got to wean themselves off. Like the, uh, Russian, the Russian gas. Yes, is, is a very, uh, they've got a real imperative to 
keep the economy going a bit more slowly and to ease the price pressure that's there. I mean, that's not abandoning their long-term goals. It's being hit in a storm. Yep. And you say, well, I want to keep my sales up, but you say, look, the storm's here and we've just got to deal with other and more immediate things and then we'll get back onto target with the decarbonisation. So in your global travels then, Gillian, which countries stand out for you to be ahead of the pack in this area? I don't know that I see any country that stands out. I mean, Europe, across Europe, they moved early on renewable energy. That was pretty expensive for them. And we've been a beneficiary of being able to take the technology where the cost has come down by a factor of tenfold or something. You know, it's really... So being a late entrant hasn't hurt us at all, but that doesn't mean we can't accelerate from where we are because the cost of all of these technologies has come down considerably and we have a much higher percentage compared to most developed countries of our dependence on coal. So we've got a very coal-intensive electricity industry compared to uh, other participants because they've already made moves. But if I look at Examples that have really worked, you probably think of California, who has progressed industries where to deal with the US as a whole, you know, there's a there's a great diversity across yep. all of the states of what they've done. And I think California really has got some fantastic industries, you know, electric cars, uh, technology in terms of solar industry. I mean, even Elon Musk made his money originally in the solar industry. So, the spin-off from going early on decarbonisation has been very significant for them, but that that was in an environment where their universities are very strongly supported and the whole infrastructure is there for them to progress quickly with a strategy like that. And they had the defence industry there, which has been very pro-decarbonisation, uh, partly because they just want to be uh, able to generate energy wherever they are in, in some situation of combat. I mean, they had they had real imperatives to back renewable energy and batteries and other technologies, and I think that helped the industry in California as well. So the um, the relationship between business and say universities, Gillian, compared to say the US, where are we at as a nation and actually maximising potential here? Yes, we're certainly in the lower levels of maximising potential. Well, you'd think we'd be wanting to minimise potential the way we go about it, but. I think, again, some of that is uh, the universities have a little bit of an insular attitude and the funding model, stop-start, hasn't – I say stop-start in that the government will say, you must have a commercial partner if you want to get this research. So the general research grants are being cut back and then you've got to get a commercial partner. And you can't get a commercial partner overnight and you can't turn a whole chemistry department into – interfacing with industry when they haven't traditionally done that. So that just takes time to develop. So those mechanisms are the right ones to say, find an industry partner. But there's also a certain scepticism out there in in corporate world that if you want to do primary research, you don't necessarily go to the university. You might recruit some private research firm in the US. So there's, there's a bit of lack of knowledge on both sides, which makes that a bit harder. But I think of um, Blue Scope. The uh, University of Wollongong has been doing research for Blue Scope for probably over 40 years. And I think it's one of the longest standing corporate university relationships. And Blue Scope is thrilled with what's done in the, it's really metallurgy. 
mm. you know, research of developing uh, hardened steel for roofs and solar panels embedded in the corrugated iron for roofs and all sorts of uh, technology which mm. can vary the paint colour, the adhesion, the life expectancy and all sorts of, I mean, not just of roofs but of infrastructure and all of the steel that Blue Scope provides to the building industry, they do a lot of research uh, with UOW. And when you get that symbiotic relationship, it'd be nice to have a few more of those. Is it discussed amongst the chancellors enough? It certainly is discussed amongst the chancellors, but whether it's enough or whether the what what synchronisation is needed between the vice chancellor, who's like the CEO and the, the board, who the chancellor is the chair of, and the government itself, getting all those elements lined up. And, and you do find with a lot of politicians, especially in the coalition, they just have a view about universities. They're all left wing and they want to get students to write about things. And, you know, they've got very outdated views about what universities are and the way they operate and the sort of commercial relationships they do have. Are they outdated, are they? Oh, I think the views of the politicians are outdated and a lot of corporate world's outdated because they haven't had enough exposure to it. Yes. So But that, is that the university's fault? That's the university's fault. It's just a bit as of much, both. It? It's a bit of both. I think you've got to have uh you, you know, you've got to have a bit of pushing from the from the Chancellor and the and the board to say, look, here's a task. Do you want to get involved with this? Uh why don't you check out that person and this person? The sort of networking that we do naturally in the corporate world, the academics tend to do in the academic world. They don't tend to, so they do network amongst their researchers, but they don't necessarily network out in the broader commercial industry side. So we're going to compete on the world stage, Gillian. Are we a smart nation? Are Are we thinking to be a smart nation? Well, we're thinking about it and we are very smart in some areas, but I think we could be smarter in other areas. So where do you think education's at? And it comes up all the time, the amount of money being spent, people walking out of tertiary education. Are they up to world standard? Well, look, we're certainly at world standard because we've got more universities in the top 200 in the world. There are sort of 20,000 universities in the world. Okay. And the University of Wollongong is in the top 1% and we're not even the top. We're probably number eight in Australia. So yeah. it, the caliber of Australian universities is right up there okay. in terms of the international ratings. Whatever international rating measure you look at, we look great. Now, are we uh, producing the right skills to be a smart nation? I think that will be facilitated by more interaction between the universities and the corporate world. And how we make that happen, I don't know. Um, some of the instruments that have been used have been effective, but moderately so. Whole financing model, you, you don't like the financing model, do you? I don't like the dependency on international students because I think it can have a dilution of the experience for the domestic student. So the University of Wollongong had about somewhere like 24% foreign students. And that's about, to me, the maximum you can have before you dilute the experience of the domestic students. Whereas Sydney and New South Wales, which because they're bigger and they can attract more foreign students, uh, probably had about 33% and maybe 80% of them were coming from China. Whereas at the University of Wollongong, we said we don't want any dependency on any one country. We weren't imagining COVID. We no. were just imagining one country might go off us as a destination. So we want, you know, no more than a third coming from any one country. So we were never as exposed to China as the University of New South Wales was. We have a great loves is the world of arts. Oh, yes. How are we going there? How, how they survived in the last couple of years? It's been pretty tough going. 
It has been tough going, and this is where JobKeeper worked quite well for Sydney Dance Company because they have a ballet corps that are permanent employees. And yeah. whereas if you take the Sydney Theatre Company, so they were the recipient of JobKeeper. So you could keep some of those employees on this retainer of JobKeeper. But when you come to the Sydney Theatre Company, they start with a blank sheet of paper. They have some permanent people in set and in the uh, director space, but a lot of them, because working in the theatre compared to working in film is not so lucrative, they don't choose to be necessarily employed by the theatre company. They want to be uh, free to go and work on on film or, or, or theatre. And so they didn't have permanent contracts. And so when it came to JobKeeper, there was nothing the theatre company could provide to them that came from the government. Mm. You know, they really suffered badly from having no ticket sales and no capacity to support the art form, like the actors and the directors, who uh, they use when they come to uh, produce a performance. And do you think as a nation we encourage the arts enough? You can never encourage the arts enough, but the support from the state government, particularly for the uh, Sydney Theatre Company and the dance company, which were the two I was close to, was significantly increased. And the federal government had a number of programs so that you could increase them just for one year and then, then it ends. So you were trying to ride through COVID. So they were certainly more sympathetic to trying to help the arts organisations through COVID than they were helping the universities through COVID. But when you make grants available, if you can't perform and you can't put on a show, you can't really use it to stimulate the art form. So it was just very hard in music and, and you know, people in the more casual performance space of pubs, you know, they couldn't do anything. Yeah. So the whole of the entertainment space really got hit very badly. On a personal nature, you've worked with some of the most, you know, in some cases, intimidating executives in the country. I'm sure you've seen a lot of stuff behind closed doors. For those people coming up, you know, and building their executive career, do you get rattled? You're always calm? And where did the confidence uh, I, come from? I think I worked out, I don't know about the confidence, but I worked out getting rattled was not getting me anywhere and not getting my cause anywhere. So I guess I thought, well, that's a waste of time. So I kind of worked on uh, building up a, a certain amount of Teflon coating so that I could... That it just bounce off? Yes. So some things could bounce off. And I do genuinely believe that most of of the aggro you receive is not personally directed at you. It's usually coming from the person who's throwing things around. And and so once I thought, you know, it's your problem, not my problem, that helped me deal with the feeling like, how can I stand this? And I'm thinking, well, you know, sometimes you've got to put up with people who aren't uh, um, so much in control of of their situation or their own behaviour in response to it. So it's been a pretty interesting career, hasn't it? Yes, very interesting. So I guess by the mantra is what, put your hand up? Gillian, is there something coming your way? You put your hand up? I so don't I'm know that I've put not. my hand Sometimes I might have put my hand up, but sometimes I had my hand dragged up and I thought, what am I, I didn't really want to do this. So I remember with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation yeah. and my husband said, don't do it, don't do it. And I said, look, I'm, I'm thinking about it because... Both our children are working in the space of, in some ways, decarbonisation, 
and energy efficiency and all of their friends are interested in this. And I'm a hard-nosed financier and I think this is going to be a tough job for someone. I probably ought to give it a go. So again, I don't think there were a whole lot of people putting their hand up for that. So (laughs) when it came to accepting the fact that, look, I'll probably, I feel my dad always said to me, if you... Uh, if there's a cause you believe in and you're asked to do it and you think you can do it well, you have to say yes. So that, <laughs> from his grave, I could hear him saying that. And I thought, oh, I suppose he's right. So, I have to do this. Gillian, if you were to look back at that young lady starting her career off at the Reserve Bank of Australia, what advice would you give her now? I'd say back your integrity, learn how to communicate your argument and build up your uh, Teflon coating. And don't take things personally. On that, Gillian, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch Thank up you, today. Thank you, It's been enjoyable. You've been listening to No Limitations. 